And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Ben Miller of Trinity Church on Long Island in Syosset, New York. Uh, Pastor Ben, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Good to be back, Dan. Thank you. So um, full disclosure here, I'm just teasing a little bit, but um, our son and daughter-in-law attend your church. Yes. And uh, when they're not up here in the Hudson Valley uh, with us visiting, they are at your church. So um, when we found out that they were attending there, we were overjoyed um, because of the the quality of of church that Trinity is and what the Lord is doing there. Before we... um, get started on our topic today, which is going to be on sojourners and exiles in the world. Ben, I think you and I perhaps share almost a similar background in that um, some of the Christian teaching early on maybe wasn't quite so faithfully Christian in terms of relationship to the world. Um, Basically, kind of distill it you know, you just stay away from everything in the world, and that's how you live a holy life type of thing. Can you explain really quick what some of your background is? And I, I think you've also been having a wonderful preaching series that's been continuing to uh, help your thinking. Right. Well, I, I did grow up in a, a church context where um, basically holiness wasn't too hard to figure out because you just looked at what everybody else out there outside the church was doing and you just didn't didn't do that <laughs> that was kind of simple you know you just don't do what anyone else out there in the outside the church <laughs> is doing and um it just led to this kind of very negative approach not just to holiness but to um you know the posture of the christian over against the quote-unquote world um and my thinking has undergone quite a lot of transformation um over the years about the, the the stance of the Christian toward the world, kind of the, the Christ and culture problem, if you like. Um, and recently I'm preaching through a series in the book of Daniel, and it's, it's got me thinking again about kind of where we Christians in the 21st century, where we are, and how the Bible describes um, kind of where we are in the world, what our position is in the world, and how different models in the Old Testament speak into that. So that's kind of what prompted my... Uh, interest in discussing this particular phrase in First Peter two eleven about being sojourners and exiles, and uh, it's very personal to me because of my background. Yeah, I can imagine that, and and definitely appreciate it. Um, so, uh, you suggested that we talk a little bit about this uh, portion out of First Peter chapter two, and in particular where Peter says that we are sojourners and exiles or pilgrims. Uh, in this world, and uh, yet leading up to that, there's there's some really sound um, teaching and helpful teaching. So uh, maybe you can get us started about this uh, subject today. Yeah. Well, I just want to be clear at the outset that what I hope to do in the next few minutes is kind of think out loud. I know that's a little bit dangerous. Oh, I, I like that. Yeah, but I mean, I, some of what I'm going to say, I'm, I'm sort of proposing. I would love to have further conversation and reflection about it. Um, I, I've observed that there are... Uh, kind of two easy ditches that, that Christians can fall into um, with respect to how we, how we as God's people relate to the world outside the, the church. One is, of course, what I grew up in, which is a very retreat, 
kind of a, a posture of retreat. We just kind of hide and right. stay away. And the other, of course, can be this kind of triumphalism where we just kind of want to take over all the halls of power and all the levers of power and get a hold of the microphones and kind of, you know, bring the kingdom yeah. by the sheer force of will almost. And, and, you know, between these two ditches, I think we have to ask ourselves, what, what does the Bible set before us, not only by way of teaching, but by way of examples? I mean, Paul says in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, the Old Testament stories are written down for our instruction. They are written down as examples for us. So, so I have long been intrigued by this phrase you hear running around in Christian circles that we are strangers and pilgrims, or <laughs> resonant aliens, or, you know, we are in exile. And, I mean, this, this is language taken from passages like First Peter 2. And, of course, Peter, in turn, is reflecting on Old Testament stories, that the language sojourners and exiles is taken from the Old Testament. But over the years, as I've looked at the kind of the lay of the land of Old Testament history, I've begun to think that a lot of modern Christians, perhaps when they hear the, the phrase sojourners and exiles, they think of two primary epi- uh, epochs or, or episodes in Israel's history. One is the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, and the other is the Babylonian exile. We are sojourners like the people of Israel in the wilderness, and we are you know, kind of saved out of the Egypt of the world and yet not quite in the heaven that is you know, the Canaan, that is the calm, the heaven, you know, the new, new world that is the calm. Sure. And the other, of course, is the, uh, Daniel's experience in exile where you know, we're under the jackboot of Babylon and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy, especially in, in our particular time, when you see a lot of mounting opposition to Christianity in the public square, I think, to feel very much like we're basically in enemy territory, kind of trying to be a more or less faithful witness here, um, until Jesus comes and, you know, kind of, we have this kind of Armageddon moment, and finally we're in the real kingdom where he reigns, and we're finally home. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, the problem with that, as I've thought about it over the years, is that, um, well, I'll, I'll begin with this. It's interesting, I didn't notice this until years back, Peter is actually quoting... All, he's actually using a, an exact phrase from the Greek Old Testament, the, same, the Septuagint, mm-hmm. and it comes not from the wilderness or from the Babylonian exile. It actually comes from Genesis chapter 23. And it's interesting here that we have Abraham, his wife Sarah has just died, and he's uh, standing before the Hittites, the Canaanites, and he, he says to them, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you, mm. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And they have this negotiation. He eventually buys this cave in the field full of trees around it. That is the exact phrase that Peter uses. We are, exactly like Abraham says here, we are, he, uh, Abraham in, in the English Standard Version, it says, he says, I'm a sojourner and foreigner. Peter says the exact same Greek phrase, but it's translated sojourner and exile in, in the English Bible. But it's the exact same phrase. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's very likely, if not pretty much conclusively true that Peter's talking about Abraham as our model. Mm-hmm. And so here's, here's, my, here's my, here's Ben thinking out loud. So Abraham is in Canaan, but Canaan is his land. God, God has said, I'm going to give this to you. This is not, it, it's currently occupied by the Canaanites, but that's going to change Abraham, because this is your land now. I, 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 this is my gift to you. You're not yet visibly in possession of it. It's not yet yours to use as you will, but it is your land. And, of course, the um, fulfillment of that Abrahamic experience 
is is not the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. It's actually the the, the conquest under Joshua. Mm-hmm. Jumping ahead then to uh, think a little more about the Babylonian exile, it's pretty clear from the book of Daniel, I'm, I've been rediscovering lately, that Daniel foresees history from his time in Babylon over the next several hundred years. He sees it unfolding in terms of these four kingdoms, which are, of course, Babylon, Babylon Medo-Persia, Greece, and then mighty Rome. And in the days of that fourth empire, the Roman Empire, he sees the kingdom of God represented as a little stone, um, represented as this kind of shadowy uh, figure called a son of man who comes to receive the kingdom from the ancient of days. In these various ways, he sees in the days of that fourth kingdom, God is going to set up a kingdom that's going to be very small, very unimpressive, a lot like Abraham, but it's going to fill in, in, and uh, going to fill the earth, become a mountain that fills the whole world. And so it's pretty clear, I think, from Daniel, and then the New Testament, I think, talks about this in all kinds of different ways. We are not living in the Babylonian exile anymore. No. It did not end in se- after 70 years when the Jews went back to Judea. It ended when God really brought down the power of apostate Israel and brought down the power of Rome, and through the this simple band of Jesus' disciples preaching the good news of his grace and, and salvation through his death and resurrection, that little thing called the Church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile together, is now you know filling the earth, and, and our conversation right now is, is an evidence and fruit of that. Yeah. So I've just really begun to kind of rethink my models. Um, we're not living in territory owned by a foreign and hostile power. We are living in land owned by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The earth is the Lord's, and we are awaiting the day when God has defeated the Canaanites by the power of the gospel, and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters fill the sea. And we need to talk, of course, about what this means in practical everyday experience for us, but I think we need to get our models right. And I think Peter gestures not towards the wilderness and the exile so much as the uh, experience of Abraham. Now, you're a pastor. I'm stating the obvious here. And you're telling your listeners, I'm rethinking my models. Now, uh, that's very transparent, not too many guys want to go forward and say, you know what, I'm um, I'm correcting, I'm tweaking, I'm trying to get closer here. I don't I don't have it all yet, but this is what I'm doing. Uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, the complexity of Scripture, I think, always gives us a lot to think about, and I think the more you get into it, the more you realize, wow, there's just an awful lot more to learn, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is. Did your, um, I'm jumping back to the initial here for a minute, and that is, uh, you were trained as a lawyer. You, you passed the bar, uh, I think it was in, uh, I don't know. 2000. Yep, 2000. Okay, 2000. And so has the Lord used any of your training in law to augment, to help, as you read the texts of sacred scripture? Yeah. Um, this can be both an asset and a liability. But one <laughs> thing I'm always thankful for about my legal training is it taught me to think you know, quite critically, mm-hmm. to be kind of slow to accept things and to, to interrogate them and probe them, and and, and I, I've been I've been helped over the years. Um, this can be abused, but I think I think it's important as we come to the scriptures to interrogate our own certainties, right? Not for the purpose of creating unhealthy um, doubt or sinful doubt, but just to always remind ourselves when you're coming up against the wisdom of Almighty God and the Word of Almighty God. 
uh, some interpretive humility is probably in order. Yeah. There's undoubtedly a lot of your settled conclusions that need to be uh, challenged and sanctified, and, and I, that, my legal training has helped me have the tools to, to work with some of well, that. That's neat. So here we are, 21st century now. We're reading these texts, and uh, you mentioned the wilderness, you mentioned the Babylonian exile, and then you mentioned the similarity of us with Abraham and the origin of this phrase that we're talking about today, sojourners and exiles. So um, in the next uh, 12 minutes or so, um, help us think this out a little more and then uh, apply it in a, in a simple way in our, in our own lives. Well, one thing that it might be good to reflect on is what is the equivalent after Jesus of the land of Canaan? Um, just to kind of step back to the big picture for a minute. Because, uh, you know, you, you read the story of, of Israel in the wilderness, and there's often this, again, as I said, there's this sense that we, like the Israelites, have been saved out of the Egypt of this world. We're kind of in this on-the-way mode. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. And someday we're going to arrive at our destination, which is heaven or the new heavens and new earth after Jesus Returns, or after we, you know, after we die, we enter into heaven, and then eventually Jesus returns. I, I wonder if that's really quite what the Old Testament and the New Testament are, are trying to present to us. It seems to me that the meek were to inherit the land in the Old Testament, and the meek inherit the earth in the New. And it seems to me that Canaan perhaps could more helpfully be viewed as a kind of down payment on the whole earth. Um, Abraham's seed was to inherit a land, which was to be kind of a new Garden of Eden, if you like, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place sure. where God dwells among men. But God intends, ultimately, for the world to be that. And under the new Adam, as he comes and sets up his kingdom and his first coming, uh, he is then going to fill the earth with his glory and with the gospel. And so Canaan, then, is the world, and what we're seeing is more like a Joshua conquest as opposed to, you know, we're just kind of waiting until we get to the land or we get to the kingdom. No, we're kind of in it, and God is putting, Christ is putting his enemies under his feet. Let me interrupt for a minute. Do you find um, Christians, uh, very sincere Christians, um, feeling that, well, we can't go too far in in terms of uh, expecting Mm -hmm. God's kingdom to spread because Jesus isn't here yet, quote-unquote. Jesus, do you you find that um, sentiment? I do, without question, and um, I mean, I, I, it seems um, it seems a little bit at odds with what Jesus himself said, which is that it's better that I go away. Oh, right, right. It didn't, in other words, it didn't, to Jesus, it doesn't seem like a liability that he's going to reign from the Father's right hand. That's, that's a good thing. His going to the Father, sending the Spirit, um, this is the power from on high that will enable his disciples to do even greater works, and um, it seems to me that the idea that Jesus needs to be bodily present for the real kingdom stuff to happen just doesn't square with what Jesus himself said. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly at the end of the age, mm-hmm. certainly with the new heavens and new earth, we see everything yes. happens. But, but I'm just yes. wondering, during this interim time, um, are we to expect to be stunted people in terms of um, a godly uh, influence on culture, let's say? Well, I would say no, and I, without deflecting proper attention from the second coming of Christ as our ultimate hope. I mean, that, that the dimension of the kingdom that opens up oh, yeah. in the new heavens and new earth is obviously something we would want to firmly look forward to and, and have that as our ultimate hope. But without deflecting attention away from that, I think that part of the reason why we as Christians 
have so little expectation now and kind of settle for very, very small things without hoping for much more is that we're just very, very impatient. Um, I think that one of the things you see with Abraham is he knows that there's hundreds of years before his seed are going to inherit the land, but he wants that burial plot because, in a sense, he's kind of like, I'm buying into this now, and he's setting up very carefully (laughs) whom his son marries, and he's getting ready for future inheritance hundreds of years before it happens. And I, I just wonder sometimes, are we in our generation... You know, I grew up in the, in, in the latter quarter of the 20th century when this sense of the millennium is ending, and you just the, the sense of apocalyptic fear was just in the air. Oh, yeah, and it know. still comes about with, yeah. you know, now and then in, in different, different venues. It does. I, I just wonder if we could sort of throw all that to the wind for a few minutes and say, what, what, if, what if there are many centuries of God's kingdom-building work to come, and are we in our generation getting our children and children's children and the disciples that we, you know, the converts God brings to us, are we getting them ready to carry this on, and, and the seeds that we're planting now, are we comfortable with the idea they might be harvested, you know, half a millennium from now? That's a very good point. I don't think we think like that. No, we don't. I know we don't, and we're made to feel guilty. Of course we're expecting the, 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 the coming of Jesus, no question. We right. pray yeah. for that, we long for that, but at the same time, I think we need to have a long-range view. I agree, completely. And I think, I think that if you take what Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, and there are other places where there's this description of Christ ruling and reigning until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy being right. death, um, well, we look around, there are still lots of enemies, so there must be, you know, there must be a sense in which we're still very much in the process and should be praying with, with I think, a long-term perspective that doesn't in any way mean we're not eagerly looking for our Lord to come again. Right. Um, I don't think these are incompatible. Well, that's refreshing. Now, that brings us to some practical questions, of course, which is, how does this actually change your everyday Christian life? And I think one, maybe a couple of things, um, you know, it, it should make us very, very interested, I would say, in all of the human things of life. You know, um, it's not just in our prayer closets and in our Bible studies and in our worship services that we are living under the kingly rule of Jesus. It's, it's in the everyday things. Can we, can we learn and explore how, you know, as we've talked about in the past, just the everyday things of life are to be done to the glory of our King under His Lordship, and we have a vision for the long, slow transformation of cultural institutions and structures which can so often, at kind of a societal level, make it very difficult. And what you're doing in, you know, trying to bring a Christian witness in media is is an absolutely enormous part of 21st century kingdom thinking, I I would say. And and none of this ends up, lands us in some kind of, you know, wild-eyed triumphalism. No. Like, we're going to go out there and storm, you know, the gates of the world and take it all by force, because it's always, Dan, it's always the gospel that changes things. Right, right. It's the spirit working through the word. It's not... It's not the model in Jesus' kingdom is not power and violence. It's always the persuasive work of the word and spirit, and and so, but we expect the word and spirit to change things. Yeah, definitely. So, here's my question now: How do we bring this together? Here we are. We're you know it's the weekend. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day. Um, how is this going to affect uh, a family that's trying to let's say homeschool their kids? <laughs> trying to trying to worship God in spirit and in truth, partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, whatever. Well, 
people who are not changed can't be a part of change. So I, I think you know we we need to come to the the worship uh, times of worship God gives us on His day, just eager to be recharged and refreshed and, and not just inspired but transformed. You know, um, and we should come hungry. And and we know that the Spirit is working in us through the Word and Sacrament. And as as, as our hearts are transformed from dread of God and, you know, the natural dread of God and natural hatred of God that is in us in our Father Adam, and, mm-hmm. and more and more that's replaced by love and peace and joy and righteousness. I mean, that's, we should hunger for those things. And I, I think as far as, you know, the, the kind of struggling family or, you know, the, the person who's just walked into the challenges of mundane life, you know, I, 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 would, I would just want to say um, we, we should seek in our daily lives worshipfulness toward God, real love for our neighbor, just the patience to slow down and notice people and care about them. And thirdly, as we talked about in the past, really working out what it means to do the work of our hands excellently, because it's not outside the kingdom. That Monday through Friday job is not outside the kingdom. Right. And whatever we do to do it and have a passion for it, and to be thinking about what it might look like if everyone were doing this under Jesus. That's a good point. You know, how can we model that? How can we practice that um, in whatever industry, whatever profession? I mean, I know it could sound kind of general, but you know, we could talk for hours about this, but those would be some <laughs> initial things I would suggest. Yeah. How about the mom in the home that's uh, teaching her kids, um, preparing meals, dishes, and constant phone calls and all this? Yeah. How does she keep going? Well, we should maybe another time talk about uh, children and homes. I would hope that it's pretty obvious how important it is. Children, they are the next generation of of the kingdom people. I mean, that's just a huge thing to think about. Homes, it's interesting. Homes are many kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And In fact, Sinclair Ferguson once called the Holy Spirit the divine homemaker. He's the one who turned, in the beginning, turned the cosmos into a home. For, for humankind. And I wonder if we don't terribly underestimate, especially in our time, how a well-ordered, beautiful, worshipful, peaceful, loving home is maybe the closest thing you can experience to the kingdom of God on earth. Mm. And I just wonder, you know, that'd be a fun thing to just talk more about. Um, and moms are right in the middle of all of that. Mm-hmm. Now, you're pastor of Trinity Church in Syosset on Long Island, um, do you enjoy just chatting back and forth like this with the men of your church? And doesn't that, I know it is the case in my life, doesn't that encourage you in the things of God when you can just go at it and tease yeah. each other and talk about um, yeah. the things of the Lord? And um, it, it's a wonderful thing. I agree. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of years is just friendship and, and how central to the kingdom of Christ friendship really is. Hmm. Um, and I, I believe that's something that we in the church need to just constantly be cultivating, is not just yeah. our family relationships, but these deep friendships in which there is the mutual edification, believing the Holy Spirit is working through the body for the building up of the body. That's a, a very big thing. Mm. And you know what makes it very hard, and we experience this ourselves personally, we live a longer distance from our church yep. um, because we, we live out in the boonies, and so yep. um, that really... That's kind of a conflict there, because you, you can't practically 
travel to the church or to the person that lives on the other side mm-hmm. uh, that's also traveling right. 15 minutes uh, and hence, you know, have a really long trip. And so yeah. um, the distance uh, sometimes hurts us in terms of community. Well, right. Modern technology has both created distance between us. I think we could probably find some ways to work with it yeah. to bring us closer together. But th- that's, I- I'm with you. That's something we think about at Trinity all the time. We're a commuter church. Yeah. Lots of our folks traveling. And that's one of the ways in which I think the 21st century kind of pushes against the kingdom, and we need to find ways to push back. The other day, some of the brothers were having a little texting party, if you will, mm-hmm. and just get going at it and theology and everything. Yep. Then they included me into it. I just watched for a while, and then I participated a little bit. But it was kind of fun because yep. uh, sometimes things would come up and somebody would say, hey, look at this video or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so uh, anyway, today we've been talking with Pastor Ben Miller. He's a pastor of Trinity Church in Syosset, New York, on Long Island. Uh, ben, if someone would like to talk with you more or visit your church, uh, perhaps they're, they're close. Uh, we do have some listeners via the Internet on Long Island. How would they go about getting hold of you? Well, uh, my study number is 631-629-4528. They're more than welcome to give a call, and uh, our website is trinitychurchlongisland.com. You can check us out there and visit us at 231 Jackson Avenue in Syosset. We'd love to have anyone come at any time, and uh, you know, we, we love getting to know new, new brothers and sisters in Christ. So on over. Yeah, well, we're uh, actually, Deb and myself, you know, that's my wife, are looking forward to visiting your church uh, tomorrow uh, with uh, Stephen and Men Lee. So we're really looking forward to that. Ben Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.